Welcome back to El Nino Speaks, everyone. Jose Nino here, and today I'm joined by Jim Jatris. For those who are not familiar with his work, Jim is a specialist in international relations, government affairs, and legislative politics. He has previously worked as a U.S. Foreign Service Officer with the U.S. Department of State and has also worked as a policy advisor and analyst for Republican leaders in the U.S. Senate. And since then, he's been in the private sector and has contributed to various outlets such as Chronicles Magazine, Strategic Culture Foundation, and Antiwar.com, among other places. How are you today, Jim? Fine, Jose. Glad to be talking with you. Great stuff. Well, let's get to it. Based on your writing, you are a major critic of U.S. foreign policy, especially in the post-Cold War era. What made you arrive at the conclusion that the U.S.'s interventionist foreign policy was going off the rails in recent decades? Well, you know, I have to say, especially from my time at the State Department, where I was, you know, one of the few very strong anti-communists at the State Department, if you can imagine that, even under the Reagan administration in the 1980s, with me at the Soviet desk, the Office of Soviet Union Affairs, that I looked forward to the day when communism would fall in Russia and the Warsaw Pact would fall apart. And I thought, rather naively, we would return to a pre-1914 kind of normal world before the crazies took over in the 1920s and 30s. It never occurred to me that we would see some craziness of our own coming from uh, Washington, this idea of benevolent global hegemony, as William Crystal and Robert Kagan spelled it out in a 1996 <laughs> article in Foreign Affairs. And I, I guess the thing that really started to tip me off that something very, very wrong was going on was in 1992, when I heard somebody from the International Republican Institute talk about how they had bought an election in Albania for only $8 million. And of course, then we saw the breakup of Yugoslavia, the expansion of NATO. So I guess I, I just began to see that there was an, an ideological imperative of global domination coming from the West. And by the West, we essentially mean the United States and our various satellites around the world to, in a sense, sort of take the place of the Soviet Union as a, an expansive empire fueled by an aggressive ideology. And that, as I say, took me somewhat by surprise. And as somebody who had always believed in American power as a force of resistance against destructive, you might say, millennialist or Gnostic ideology in the form of communism, it you know, didn't really occur to me that we would see the birth of a similar ideology emanating from our own country, our, our own leadership, to the detriment of not only the, the world and peace in the world, but specifically to the American people whose livelihoods and whose very existence is being put at jeopardy by a leadership class. And by that, I mean both a, a government and corporate leadership class that I think is estranged from the American people and our national traditions and history and interests in pursuit of this insane uh, goal of global domination. Yeah, that's what I've gathered myself, that basically... A lot of people, like even like Pat Buchanan, for example, most of my listeners would be familiar with how he thought that once the Cold War ended, there would be kind of like a geopolitical reset. But in all honesty, the foreign policy class like seriously thought that, no, we've reached like an end of history and we need to turn basically this entire planet into like one gigantic like shopping mall and import so-called liberal democracy across the globe. And it's a bipartisan endeavor. You just have like different ways of doing it, whether it's like the neoconservatives on the so-called right and like neoliberal interventionists like in the Democratic Party. Now, let's go to like the Republican Party angle, though, because I do find your background in the GOP interesting because I myself previously worked in Republican politics doing Second Amendment work specifically. And from my experience there dealing with a lot of Republican politicians, this is mostly state level and occasionally federal level. By and large, I found most Republicans to be empty suits with a few exceptions here and there. How was your experience dealing with Republicans during your time working in the Senate? I think it's about the same. You know, I remember when the first expansion of NATO took place 
that there was actually some resistance to it, unlike in the subsequent waves. And, you know, this is in 1996, and there was a right-left coalition in the Senate opposing NATO expansion, and it was mostly on the right of the Republican Party. So we had people like Jim Inhofe of Oklahoma, Larry Craig of Idaho were sort of the leaders on our side. And then we had people on the left of the Democratic Party, like Paul Wellstone, who were opposed to it. And then the outside groups as well. We had people like Phyllis Schlafly, who was one of the leading outside groups in the Eagle Forum against NATO expansion and the Council for a Livable World on the Democratic side. You know, it was still respectable in those days, although very much in the minority, to at least oppose this. And it was among, you know, again, I can always remember the good old days in the Senate when you had, if you had two votes against something bad, it was going to be Ron Paul and Dennis Kucinich. Even though they had ideologically nothing in common, at least they had the the integrity of their positions to oppose some of the worst things that the, the broad consensus could always find itself in support of. As you say, liberal interventionists or, or neocons, not a dime's worth of difference between them when it comes to an aggressive policy. So uh, it just seems that for most of the people in the Republican Party, and frankly, I think it's true of most of the Democratic Party, the so-called Democratic centrists, who simply fall in line <laughs> yeah. with whatever the government establishment, the so-called deep state and the corporatocracy wants. And there's only a few outliers on either the right or the left who want to stand up to it. What's even more shocking to me is the strange death of the anti-war left, basically. That's one of the most shocking developments of the past 20 years. It's just like almost non-existent. Now it's like basically like the populist right that has like picked that up because now you even see a lot of so-called progressives repeat CIA State Department talking points like verbatim about whichever monster of the week the U.S. is confronting. And yeah, like the 90s, when you look back at it, it was like a weird type of like geopolitical time warp when you had like some Republicans actually question like the Haitian intervention and even like the slop wars and all that. But then like 9-11 happened and these people just went straight to like full-blown neocon programming. That's absolutely right. And I think that may be, with the death of the anti-war left may have something to do with the fact that on a host of issues, the establishment I described, government and corporate, is woke. That is to say that Mm -hmm. because the ideological baggage that they're carrying is largely the stuff that they like, you know, on the stuff about, you know, racial and sexual and all those other, you know, issues that we see domestically, whether it's, you know, Black Lives Matter or, you know, rainbow flags and all the rest of it, (laughs) that they sort of feel like it's our ideas of truth and justice that is now the American way that we're exporting to the rest of the world. You know, I suppose there'd be fewer people on the right who were opposed to this if it was all, you know, mom and God and apple pie and Christianity, which it's not. Although there's certainly an awful lot of people on the right who still seem to think that that is the nature of American power in the world. I mean, I always find it puzzling when you find conservatives who will say, yeah, I don't trust the government. I don't trust the IRS. I don't trust what they're doing here domestically. They're trying to take our guns. We got to stand up for the Constitution. And then they spin around on a dime and say, we should bomb this or that country because they're against America. Why do they think the American government and the people who run it are more benign internationally than they are domestically. <laughs> yeah. Why would you trust the State Department? War is just another big, expensive federal program when you come down to it. Yep. But apparently that doesn't register with a lot of conservatives when it's abroad. But you're right. There are some people on the populist right. And I think we can see this increasingly now that why should we believe the people who, who lied to us when it came to the pandemic and the vax or Black Lives Matter and Antifa burning down our cities or the election and the so-called January 6th insurrection, you know, go down the list of the things that the media has lied to us about. Oh, but when it comes to Russia or Ukraine or whatever, oh, now they're telling us the truth and we better salute the flag and march off. Okay, this leads perfectly into my next question because, yeah, it's the topic of the day, the geopolitical issue of our time, the Russo-Ukrainian military conflict. What is your overall view on Russia's military operations in Ukraine, and were they preventable? Oh, it was certainly preventable. I mean, I think up until probably the day the attack was launched, if NATO had come out 
and said, no, no, we are not expanding NATO any further. That is off the table permanently. And we will ensure that with solid guarantees and that we will force Kiev to talk to the Donbass republics in accordance with the Minsk agreement. I think up until the last minute that that offensive could have been averted. And I think it was only because of this very in-your-face, no, 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 you have nothing to say about it. You know, every country in the world has a God-given right to enter NATO. If we say so, you don't have a voice on the matter. You know, and frankly, I think they expected this. I think if you look at what the Russians were saying, you know, for the last few months, including even going back into last year, that very long piece that Putin wrote about, historically about Russia and Ukraine, I think they were laying the basis for the foundation for this and hoping but not expecting that they would finally, like he keeps saying, are you listening now? Are you listening now? And of course, nobody in the West was listening. They were they were rather saying in your face. And frankly, I think there were some people in the West who wanted this to happen, that they wanted to have, they think Russia sucked into a quagmire, another Afghanistan, caused another Cold War, caused the Germans, the French to get back on the reservation, to blunt the Belt and Road Initiative reaching into Europe to uh, shut down Nord Stream 2. I mean, and of course, you know, oodles and oodles of uh, military spending. So I think there were sort of mixed agendas on the Western side as well. You ask me, are they doing the right thing? I don't know if they're doing the right thing. It's not what I actually expected them to do. I expected that they would respond in some very dramatic way to their ultimatum being rejected. I thought maybe they would launch it. There was a very good piece by Patrick Armstrong a few weeks before the invasion about the various options the Russians had, including you know a strike specifically on the Azov Battalion, or maybe themselves shutting down Nord Stream 2, or just simply recognizing the Donbass republics without necessarily any military action launched at that point. You know, it was like a laundry list of 30 things they could have done, Will this turn out to be the right one? I don't know. But on the other hand, I don't know what else. You know, I'm not in a position to say, oh, yeah, you should have done this instead. If I were in their shoes, I would be saying to myself, I have to do something. Because otherwise, NATO and the West will simply continue what I see as a kind of an anaconda strategy to simply put them in a completely indefensible position with regard to their national security, their economy, their financial system, and ultimately regime change. As far as this kind of whining we get from people, oh, but why? NATO admission was not really on the table for Ukraine. Anybody who's familiar with the kind of offense cooperation we were conducting with Ukraine knows very well that we're we're making Ukraine a NATO member in everything but name. And that it appears increasingly that they were preparing a kind of an operation storm attack on the Donbass that would have been launched once they thought the Russians were sufficiently cowed that they would not respond. And how soon that was going to be, I don't know. There's been some suggestion that was coming sooner than we might have thought. But in any case, yeah, I think they made a hard decision to do what they need to do from their point of view, whether it turns out to be the right one for Russia or Ukraine, I don't know. But also, I think we have to keep in mind, it now is, I think, increasingly clear This is going to be a real life and death question for the whole global financial economic system based on the U.S. dollar. We just saw an announcement today that there's going to be the launch of a new currency, obviously based on the Chinese yuan, but backed up with commodities, which will be mostly Russian commodities, metals, especially gold, energy, and so forth. And also that the Saudis are going to start selling. oil to the Chinese in Yuan, we could be looking at a very severe undermining of the global economic and financial system that has existed for the last few decades. And that's what's really at stake in Ukraine in many ways. Yeah, that's actually a really interesting point. Do you think the China-Russia strategic partnership is built to last? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. I've been struck by how many people even recently who sort of ponder with this, you know, the way things are developing, we could see the emergence of a Russia-China alliance of some sort. You know, where have they been? I mean, if American policy had been designed to push Russia and China together, yeah, exactly, it could not have done a better job. I mean, somebody 
smarter than I am, once said sometime back, you know, if American leaders were smart, which they are not, <laughs> they would have recognized that Washington's being on better terms with Moscow and Beijing than they are with each other is in the American national interest. And of course, they did the exact opposite. And I think at this point, you know, some people say, well, you know, eventually they're going to come to blows. You know, the Chinese want all the, the resources of Siberia and all that sort of thing. Hey, maybe that will eventually happen. I don't think so. I think they're both pragmatic enough and smart enough to know that countries that size located right next to each other can only destroy each other if they were to become enemies of one another. As far as the Chinese wanting the, the resources of Siberia, yeah, maybe they're dumb enough to go to try to seize them. But why would they do it anyway? Even if they seize them, they wouldn't be cost-free to exploit. Why do that when somebody else is happy to extract them and sell them to you at reasonable prices? Yeah, Russia has nuclear deterrence. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's right. I mean, why, if you're China, why risk destroying your country to obtain materials that the other side is perfectly willing to sell to you? So I don't really see that happening. And I also see something, again, back to the ideological factor, this one-size-fits-all mentality. Oh, everybody has to have the same social system. Everybody has to have the same morals or, if you will, immoral system that we're peddling around the world, as opposed to letting Russia be Russia, let China be China, let Iran be Iran, let you know every other country have its own economic and social and moral and religious system and respect that which evidently our leadership in the, in the woke, woke West is not willing to do. You make a good point about the wokeism, because I think as long as the U.S. is like a woke state, which will invariably bleed into its foreign policy, because let's face it, progressivism, you cannot extricate it from the domestic and international. It's a full-blown package. You're getting wokeism, progressivism shoved down your throat at all levels. I think it's going to basically solidify this Eurasian axis and whatever beef that China and Russia may have over time. It's still like pales in comparison to the beef they're going to have with like the U.S. that's always color revolutioning all the countries within their respective spheres of influence. And I've like said this before that like one of the main reasons why Russia is gravitating to China is very simple. China isn't the one that's using like an entire military alliance like NATO to creep on Russia's backyard, nor is it pushing wokeism and other stuff that subverts like Russian culture the way the NATO, US, EU, the Anglo-American establishment does. So it's like real politique, man. Like states will ally with other states that don't mess with them the way like the US does. Like US's foreign policy is turned into an ideological fixation. It's not like a coherent foreign policy. That's right. And, and uh, you know, my signature line about this is there's no transatlanticism without transgenderism, <laughs> that it's a package. If you want, if you want to be part of the West, if you want to be part of the alliance, and that's, that's why like countries like Poland and Hungary are always getting a hard time from the EU, because all these values are human rights and values that we all have to agree on, even though a lot of people don't. You know, I don't know if, how many people have seen the comparison of the three recruiting ads of the U.S. Armed Forces, China and Russia. And of course, the Chinese and yes. Russian ads are very similar. <laughs> I'm strong. I serve my country. I defend my people. And the other one is this silly cartoon ad. I was, oh, hi, I was raised by two mommies. I'm here to, to preserve freedom and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I think and this maybe accounts for some of the way in which um, the um, more populist elements in the West maybe not necessarily supporting the Russian position, but are not necessarily upset about, you know, the global American empire, the gay taking it in the chops, because <laughs> maybe the collapse of this woke empire will lead to a collapse of wokeism at home. And, uh, you know, what does that make us? Like defeatists or something, or we're, we're not patriotic enough because we don't support the kind of anti-American values that have come to dominate our country is that, you know, maybe there's some hope that in all of this, if we withdraw from this empire, well, as Putin has called this, this empire of lies and become a normal country. And, and let's face it, I mean, we're, we're a normal country in a very, very secure place in a hemisphere that we dominate, and I think we'll continue to dominate, that is there some hope maybe that at some point we can go back to something resembling a normal, nationally-minded, if you will, even you know Christian-minded America with some solid moral values 
and a kind of an economy that actually serves the needs of our people, not some, you know, transnational corporate class that simply wants to, you know, make a lot of money for themselves while selling out the economic interests of the middle and working classes. Now, just going back to Russia, there's um, a lot of speculation on how Vladimir Putin will handle the question of Ukraine. I've heard some scenarios thrown out there like demilitarization and neutralization of Ukraine. There's some people I've even heard talk about how he'll probably partition it. And the most radical speculation I've also seen is like that outright annexation might be on the table. How do you think Putin's going to handle the question of Ukraine once this invasion is over? I don't think there's much prospect of an outright annexation. It's possible that having recognized the uh, Lugansk and Donetsk republics at some point, they could ask to be included in the Russian Federation the same way Crimea was. But you'll notice, for example, that Abkhazia and South Ossetia and Georgia are still recognized by Russia as independent states, although hardly anybody else does. I think Nicaragua does. But Ossetia wants to be part of the Russian Federation. Abkhazia doesn't really. Maybe that could happen in the future on some piecemeal way. I think it is likely that some kind of, first off, I think it's pretty clear, Donbass, the Donetsk and Lugansk republics are not going back to Ukraine. And I would not be surprised if other parts of what is sometimes referred to as Novorossiya, like uh, Odessa or Kharkov, themselves also become independent states recognized by Russia, or maybe we end up with a single Novorossiya to the south and east of uh, what has been Ukraine up till now as a new state allied with Russia, and then maybe some kind of rump Ukraine in the center or west of the country that is forced to agree to being a neutral state on the model of you know, what Finland and Austria and Sweden were during the first Cold War. I don't know, but I think it's quite almost certain at this point that the borders of the Ukrainian state as it existed since 1991 are not going to be the same ones that emerge from this war. And that's, you know, also we have to sort of cut through this fog where you're hearing so much nonsense about, oh, the Russians are losing this war, they're not meeting their military goals and all that. No, they're just proceeding very, very carefully in a way that does not do over much damage to Ukraine and kill too many Ukrainians because they're going to have to live with these people, you know, when this war is over and they don't want to do that. They're not going in there with, uh, you know, shock and awe to destroy everything in sight, destroy all the infrastructure, even kill lots of Ukrainian soldiers. They're really trying to avoid that. And frankly, that's where I think they're also leaving themselves vulnerable to this horrible propaganda war against them about not only are they losing, but they're targeting civilians, they're getting desperate, they're going to use chemical weapons. I was just watching an absolutely atrocious talk at the Atlantic Council just today with people like Wesley Clark saying, oh yeah, Putin oh, is God. probably going to use nuclear weapons because he's losing and he's, he's getting desperate and we have to show that we're prepared with our nuclear weapons and we're, I mean, it's just, it's really, really scary because I think some of these people are, are you know, breathing their own fumes here when it comes to their propaganda. And I think the prospects that this turns into a wider conflict because somebody on the Western side does something really, really stupid, I think those prospects are rising and they're rising fast. And that's one reason I think it's not only in the Ukrainians' interests, but in everybody's interest for this to wrap up pretty quickly. You know, and I understand the Russian desire to proceed carefully and not kill a whole bunch of people and so forth. But I think somewhere there's a tipping point between what is proceeding humanely and carefully and what is leaving vulnerability out there that's going to be exploited by some very bad forces, and including, I am virtually certain, the unleashing of some kind of a false flag, as we saw repeated times in Syria, not to mention in places like Bosnia and elsewhere. Agreed on all fronts. Yeah, this conflict definitely needs to get wrapped up soon because there's going to be a huge push, I think, by the powers that be to use a bunch of rent a jihadists that they frequently use, like the typical Sunni extremists, like they've used in Chechnya, the Balkans, so-called moderate rebels in Syria, and also like in Xinjiang as well in China. So that playbook is has always been used. And I, I fear that it may be used as this conflict drags out. 
Now let's go outside of Russia because I've noticed that you've made several appearances on Press TV. That's a Iranian state-owned channel that actually does a lot of good work at exposing a lot of like the West's flawed foreign policies. And yeah, Iran and like the US have had like tensions for a while. Like you can go all the way back to the coup that deposed Mohammed Mossadegh in 1953, just to see how deep-seated these tensions are. And and it's only accelerated since the Islamic Revolution of 1979. And like pretty much all things like foreign policy, both parties are committed to enacting like some form of regime change in Iran. And you have like the more like subversive stuff on like the neoliberal left where they'll use like color revolutions and other sanctions and all of that. But then you have just like really fervid, rapidly pro-Zionist Republicans that just want like direct military action against Iran. So you just have like a really hostile monoculture in DC when it comes to dealing with Iran. Where do you see Washington's policy with Iran going these days? It's really not clear. I mean, there have been reports that the United States and Iran are very close to somehow getting the U.S. back into the JCPOA. And of course, we've seen the reports that since the Ukraine war started and the question of prices on availability of uh, energy are very much at issue right now, that the United States has been going hat in hand to the Venezuelans and to the Iranians, you know, governments we've been trying to overthrow for years to say, oh, gosh, could you be a pal and increase your production and sell some to us? I mean, it's just phenomenal how low we've been forced to crawl because of our stupidity in, in Ukraine. And of course, again, I can only go by the news reports. And apparently, President Biden's call or whoever passes for Joe Biden these days, his calls to uh, Riyadh and to the uh, United Arab Emirates have gone unanswered. So it seems that there is a kind of a desperation in the energy field. At the same time, as you point out, geopolitically, we seem to be as adverse to Iran as ever, since they clearly are siding with the, you know, we might call it the Eurasian camp, the Russians and the Chinese. You know, I can't help but think of when General Soleimani was killed, that KT McFarlane, who was at the Trump uh, National Security Council, commented on this. I think she was at CPAC. And she was pointing out that, well, with U.S. energy independence now, we no longer have a dog in the fight in the tribal battles in the Middle East, which maybe has some limited truth for it and did at that time. And she says, so therefore, we can really pound the Iranians. And I'm thinking, well, wait a minute. If we don't have a dog in the tribal fight in the Middle East, you know, the Israelis, the Saudis, the Iranians, whoever, hey, let them all play in their sandbox together. What do we have to do with it? Why do we have to get involved with that? But the idea that somehow, because we're energy independent, or were at the time, supposedly, we can go around killing people and taking sides in these disputes makes no sense to me at all. I mean, I really want to go by the George Washington view of not having any permanent attachments or antipathies toward other countries and try to get along with everybody. I mean, you notice, by the way, that has been the secret success of Russian diplomacy in recent years, even more than it was during Soviet diplomacy or during the Cold War is, you know, the Russians get along with the Iranians. They also get along with the Israelis. They get along with pretty much everybody. And, you know, I must say when I've been on uh, press TV, they've always treated me fairly. I recall recently I had a program about Ukraine where the other guy was 100% opposite mine who got into a pretty decent shouting match. And I was saying to myself, you know, you'd never see this sharp of a difference of opinion on CNN. They would never allow it. But the Iranians do allow it. And, you know, that doesn't mean I necessarily agree with the state ideology of Iran. You know, personally, most Muslim countries, I'd rather see something more secular like you see in Syria. But, um, you know, hey, it's not my country. It's not up to me to overthrow their government or to tell them what kind of a social order they should have. It's up to the people of that country. And there just doesn't seem to be much in the way of, in America, of the kind of a live and let live attitude toward other countries. Yeah, I agree with that. When you have like a universalist foreign policy, the natural instinct for like the ruling class is just to try to impose this type of vision all across the globe with no regards to like potential unintended consequences. And yeah, I think like the Iran policy is like really stupid because like when you look at like the majority of like Islamic terrorism that takes place in the West, it's like being committed by Sunni Arabs or like Pakistanis. It's not done by like Shia 
or like Persians or Arabs. And like, it makes from a real politics standpoint, as brutally honest as it's going to sound, it makes like having like Iran as a, a strong actor in the Middle East pretty good because it'll absolutely check a lot of like the Sunni sponsors of a lot of like these terror groups, like whether it's like Saudi Arabia, any Gulf Arab states or the Turks, whatever. So it's in our interest, the national interest to have like a relatively strong Iran. But there's a lot of people in D.C. that are still really stuck on like a lot of those like 20th century geopolitical tropes or are very much in the pocket of also uh, the Israel lobby at the end of the day. Because, I mean, I do admit that like, yeah, for Israel, like Iran is like a strategic threat. But guess what? Like U.S. is not Israel. We have different interests from Israel. And I generally take neutral stances on all of those matters in the Middle East, whether it's like the Israeli versus Palestinian thing or any of Israel's beefs. But like the U.S., like the best policy is to have like normal, not special relationships with any of these countries in the Middle East. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. And and that goes down to a problem. I mean, we talk about Israeli influence over America, which is quite substantial. I don't think anybody can really deny that. That, to me, is not so much an Israeli problem as an American problem, is that if any country, small or large, wants to exert its influence over America for its benefit, you can't really blame them. They're looking out for their own country. That's what they should be doing. The problem is, why are the people in charge of our country not looking out for our country's interests? And, you know, of course, you know, Israel's the 800-pound gorilla in that league. But if you look at kind of the souk, the bazaar, the flea market that Congress has become, not only for Israeli interests, but the Saudis and the Emiratis and the Indians and the Pakistanis and, and the Ukrainians, you can go down the list. They might as well put barcodes on the congressmen's foreheads so you can see what their prices are. And it's really kind of despicable. And I think part of that is because... We have lost sight of America as, as a state that has its own kind of core ethnic identity of the, you know, the English-speaking people who built this country. What are their folkways and their values? You know, all those guys in powdered wigs and knickers, you know, signing all those documents in the 18th century. And we think in terms of these kind of vague global notions that have nothing to do with the roots and origins of our country, as Samuel Huntington put it, you can't know what your country's interests are unless you know who you are. And we don't know who we are anymore. We've sort of adopted this notion that we're this, as the stroke Talbot, Bill Clinton's foreign policy advisor, I think he was deputy secretary of state, put it that we are the embryo of a global nation. Well, if you think that's all we are, an embryo of a global nation, and we're not really a country with our own identity and interests, of course, you expect all these corporations and foreign states to treat us like uh, just sort of a, a natural resource that they can use for their own benefit. And that is, I think, is destroying this country. And maybe, maybe if this global empire we've been building were to collapse, maybe at some point we might figure out who the hell we actually are. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of him, but to quote Louis Farrakhan, like the whole U.S. is for sale now. It's like essentially just like a shopping mall and it just goes to like the highest bidder now. There's not like any consideration for like the input of like the historic American nation and any type of policies that advance like the American national interest. It's it's actually gone like very post-national in many respects. Yeah, that's right. And of course, with regard to Farrakhan specifically, I mean, of course, he's speaking less from a, an American national perspective because he's essentially a black nationalist. And I, you know, and I understand that. I can, you know, respect that to a certain extent. And that that I think in some ways underscores how complex this is, even if the rest of the world didn't exist, how fractured America is becoming in terms of, you know, what is an American? What is our national identity? How does it relate to issues like, you know, race, ethnicity, language, religion, all of these things that define other countries? You know, as somebody of relatively recent ethnic origin without a drop of Anglo-Saxon blood, I still nonetheless think that the Anglo-Saxon origins, and the fact we're speaking English here for crying out loud, has something to do with why we have the institutions we have and why we have the values enshrined in our constitution, which would be nice if somebody actually, uh, you know, honored and in, in actually observed on occasion, rather than just sort of these sort of generic principles of uh, humanism or, you know, 
nowadays now the post-humanism, the great reset, and all of that nonsense that's being shoved down our throat. These are very complex issues that I think we're going to be finding ourselves in some very dangerous territory in this country in the next few years, whether or not we end up blowing ourselves up in a new war internationally. So let's um, go back to the Trump administration, because I've read some of your work at the Strategic Culture Foundation over the years, and I found your coverage of Trump's presidency to be pretty sober and balanced. You were initially optimistic with Trump, as as was I, because he was like probably the closest thing to voting for Pat Buchanan that you could find these days. But you soon gradually started to sour on the administration. What would you say, I mean, where would you say the Trump administration went wrong in the end? Well, I think there are a few things. One is, as I saw it, and there was one piece I wrote called uh, Mikhail Octavian Trump that people can look up about what I thought was probably the last chance anybody might have to peacefully pull this country out of its nosedive. And look, I'll be honest, maybe it was already too late. Maybe nobody could have done anything at that point. But maybe Trump had a chance to do that if the circumstances were not too far gone. Even if that were the case, however, he was not up to the task. To start with, he seemed to come into office with this notion that he can just sort of come in and he'll be allowed to run the country and have a lot of smart guys working for him. Oh, Mad Dog Mattis, don't you love that name, Mad Dog? Or put John Bolton in as the national security advisor and so on and so forth, that he'll get all these off-the-shelf Republicans and neocons from the Heritage Foundation or from the Republican National Committee, and somehow they would do what he talked about during the campaign. As it happens, of course, far from draining the swamp, he populated his whole administration with swamp monsters and then wondered why he couldn't get anything done that he wanted to get done. Unfortunately, too, I think his narcissism and his uh, egotism got in the way of his realizing that he was not handling this well, that rather than coming in, understanding he was landing behind enemy lines and he had to have a small group of like-minded people who could figure out a strategy for subduing that state. I mean, let me give you a comparison. Take a guy, and I'm you know, not a big admirer of his in many ways, but at least somebody who has played his cards very well. Take President Erdogan of Turkey. Here's a guy who is an Islamist. He comes into a Kemalist political order dominated by the military and systematically manages to gut it out from the inside and have it perform his will rather than having it overwhelm what he wants to do. That's the kind of thing Trump would have had to have been able to do to play a very clever, long-term game with the right people around him. Instead, he surrounded himself with all the wrong people. You know, what, what was his only accomplishment during an office, really? He, he passed a tax bill that any Republican president would have gotten through mm-hmm. controlling both houses of Congress. He didn't build his wall. He didn't manage to pull out of Afghanistan or Syria like he wanted to do. He didn't get better relations with Russia. He didn't change our trade relationship with China. In terms of his signature policy, one thing I will give him is that he did not start a new war, which is a record for presidents in recent decades. So let's give him credit for that. But I just don't think he was personally up to the task, assuming the circumstances were conducive to doing what he said he wanted to do in 2016. Yeah, the Trump administration was pretty revelatory because of the fact that it proved one thing as well that I've said for years that a lot of foreign policy decision-making is really not made by the executive any longer. They're kind of like figureheads. You have like a lot of competing power poles within like the State Department, like the intelligence community that want to like pursue stuff. Like you see it kind of like in Syria where I think like the DOD wanted to like send arms to the Kurds, but then like the CIA was propping up all like the so-called like moderate rebels and all that. And it's just a total mess. Like you don't really have like a true sovereign executive and it's going to have to like require like a serious executive to clean house. Like you'd have to have at least like 50 Douglas McGregor's in there to see any genuine change happen. Well, that's right. And the sad thing is there are those people. I, I know a lot of them. I remember people asking me, as the administration was taking over, hey, Jim, you think you'll you'll get an appointment in the administration, which frankly, I wasn't interested in. But I mean, there are dozens of people I could have named and there are others that could have named others, you know, hundreds of people that would have been in agreement 
with Trump's stated policies and who had the experience and the competence to implement them, obviously they were all frozen out of the system. That the system, even during the campaign, was dominated by Republican regulars and neocons who only wanted, you know, basically what they wanted Trump's foreign policy and national security policies to be would be essentially a third George Bush administration, which is more or less what it turned out to be. And I think, unfortunately, what that meant is in the bigger picture having to do with the future of America is that rather being, the, if you will, an Octavian who could have restored the republic and saved what could have been saved and trashed what needed to be trashed, he turned essentially into a Mikhail Gorbachev. He took a system that was approaching decrepitude and put it in position where he became a catalyst for the collapse of the system, where the system increasingly polarized, and which is, of course, what we saw accelerate during his time in office. So I think in terms of the kind of you know collapse of the American Republic that is in some ways parallel to what happened to the Soviet Union in the 1980s, Trump will be seen by history as having accelerated that. Yeah, that's unfortunate, but that's how a lot of like the cookie is crumbling these days. So yeah, this is a pretty good segue into like more domestic policy because from what I've gathered, you tend to have very much like paleoconservative, America first nationalist leanings. What domestic issues animate you the most? Oh gosh. I mean, I mean, I'm you know, domestic issues. I'm I, you know, I'm pro-life, pro-gun. In a way, I prefer the old America. I prefer an America that was a rule of law country that the Supreme Court just stuck to deciding cases instead of inventing law whenever it felt like it, that uh, Congress did not usurp power from the states. And to tell the truth, Jose, I almost have trouble imagining what that America would look like anymore, given how far down the road we've come into a kind of a you know corporate-controlled, um, demagogic, administrative state that really has nothing in common with what the historic uh, America looked like. I know there are a lot of people today who don't want to hear this because, you know, you know, a constitution, follow the constitution. Yeah, I'm all for that, but it is going to happen. I mean, it's essentially a constitution in name only at this point. And I do have to ask the question, okay, how many republics has France been through? Well, this is the fifth republic. That's a clue. Plus a couple of Napoleons and some monarchies and things like that. Yet there still is a French nation. So I think at some point we need to ask the question, what does a post-constitutional America look like? What kind of a new order can take its place? Can the country even survive as a single country? And I tend to think probably not anymore. I just don't think, let me put it this way. If you compare it to 1861, they prayed to the same God, they read the same Bible, they honored the same founding fathers, they appealed to the same constitutional principles. We can't even agree on our pronouns. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. we, are, we are aliens to one another yeah. in a way that was not the case during the first, well, actually technically our second civil war, if you want to count the first one as between loyalists and patriots during the time of the revolution. So I'm afraid if, if we try to hold the country together, it could only work in one of two ways. One is the woke regime wins and subdues what is left of the traditional America or the country breaks up at some point, hopefully peacefully. And I don't know how that would happen, especially since there's no mechanism for it. There's no mechanism to say, okay, how does the country come apart? At least <laughs> at least in Soviet Union in 1990, they passed a law on secession from the USSR, which actually allowed Union Republics a vehicle for getting out of the Soviet Union, which eventually occurred. But then you had all the problems associated with the breakup and the, the borders and ethnicities and things like that. I don't think there's any clear, easy, neat, and peaceful path forward for us, especially if it takes place in the context of a more generalized collapse of a financial economic system. And, you know, things, you know, I I keep asking myself, what happens when food trucks don't get to Detroit and Baltimore for a week? It's not going to be pretty. So based on my experience with Second Amendment lobbying, I think you're going to see what I've called like in an article I've written before at the Mises Institute, so-called policy ghettoization, where you're seeing like red states now left and right adopt constitutional carry, for example, like for some perspective, right when Obama got inaugurated, there were only two constitutional carry states, Vermont and Alaska. 
Mm-hmm. Now you have 23 constitutional carry states, possibly 25 by the end of the year. So I think that what's going to really happen is a lot of like wedge political issues, like say like abortion, Second Amendment, stuff like that. It's going to pass on like state lines where like the red states are going to pass their pet legislation and the blue states are going to pass their pet legislation. That said, it really boils down to, in my opinion, is like the mass migration question, because if they get like a mass amnesty, that's like basically the final straw that breaks the camel's back that creates like a one party state. Because I think that's been like the Democrat strategy of like using mass third world migration to create like an electoral pipeline. But I think that's going to go like well beyond politics, because at that point, if they were able to get that wish, like you basically erase the historic American nation. And I've said this before, and I'm drawing this from Pat Buchanan, that we're going to reach a point where we're going to be talking about the long lost tribes of the European Americans. And this also applies to Europe too. So I think like, we're not just like talking about an issue of just like, oh, will Republicans be able to win an election any longer? No, we're talking about something much more fundamental where like the US and like the collective West will just like disappear into the ether and just become like another civilization that like disappears that future historians very likely of like the CCP will be talking about like the long lost tribes of like the Europeans. So yeah, that's what I think is at stake, but a lot of people haven't really woken up to it. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's where the holy grail for the wokesters is Texas. If they can flip Texas, like they, you know, flip Virginia a few years ago or Colorado or you know Georgia, maybe it's all over nationally. At the same time, you have a counter trend as you described with regard to guns where you, know, you talk about red states and blue states, of course, as we know, that's largely an urban versus non-urban phenomenon. You take a state yes, like basically. Illinois or even New York. I mean, there, there's a lot, you know, lots, lots and lots and lots of red, red, red counties, but you have a couple big blue blobs of cities that basically outweigh those counties. And, and so that's why you know breaking up is hard to do. There's no neat way to do it. I mean, take Virginia. Most of Virginia is very, very red. How many counties we had here who passed resolutions saying that they would not enforce unconstitutional gun laws in Virginia because, well, for the obvious reason, but you got Northern Virginia, all the Washington, D.C. suburbs that basically outweigh the rest of the Commonwealth, even though we recently managed to win an election here in Virginia, which I don't expect to really be a lasting turnaround in Virginia politics. And the other thing that really bothers me, Jose, is that there's a real cynicism about the rule of law that works to the detriment of you might call the the traditional America. That you know, as as the other side tries to, as Bertolt Brecht put it, to elect a new people by flooding the country with people from outside mm-hmm. to outweigh the traditional Americans. Who, by the way, despite the fact that you know, de sangre, neither you or I are really traditional Americans, but we certainly identify with that America. This is the America we grew up in that we that we that we love. But I think that part of the vulnerability of that traditional America is its law abidingness, is that when the Supreme Court decides something or the president issues an executive order or Congress passes some law that's completely not only immoral but unconstitutional, and just cynically so, that a lot of the regular Americans will shrug their shoulders and say, gosh, I don't like it, but we have to obey the law. And even so, that's how the lawless take advantage of the law abiding. And you wonder at what point people at the grassroots level out in all these red counties start saying to themselves, to hell with this. I'm not going to, quote, obey the law when they tell me to do something that clearly is not the law, but they're just making it up. You know, that, that, that I will not defer to supposed legitimate authority when they behave illegitimately. And that's a really tough Rubicon for the Anglo-Saxon mind to cross. The Anglo-Saxon mind wants to say, we obey the law, we have the rule of law, we have due process. And so when their cynical rulers violate all these principles, they nonetheless feel the need to obey. And that's a habit they've got to break at some point. You raise a good point about the counties, because I do think that if there is a silver lining, it's nullification. It's actually starting to become somewhat mainstream in a lot of Republican circles now, the issue because it used to always be like derided mm-hmm. as oh this like reactionary racist like thing that only like the South used, 
But like hilariously, people tend to forget because since nobody really reads their history books that like in the early days of the American Republic, most of the secessionist movements, especially during the War of 1812, were actually in the North. But yeah, no one wants to talk about that. But yeah, like I do think like nullification might be one of like the ways out in terms of like carving out like our own like little statelets that are like free from this stuff. But it's going to be hard. It's not going to be easy. And it's going to require a lot of muddling through. I think you're right. And I think that exists in a kind of embryonic form. And I think we're seeing like, you know, two curves on a graph to see which one reaches a certain point before the other. I guess the way I see it is, can that reluctant and halting tendency toward nullification essentially kind of a, sometimes people call it internal secession from illegitimate overreach from the federal authorities overtake the remaking of society on the national level based on on demographic change. And then, of course, you have to add to that, you know, what's the larger context regarding, you know, the economy and the financial system and whether we manage to blow ourselves up? You know, very turbulent times lie ahead for the U.S. Like, we'll see what happens. But yeah. Well, Jim, it was a pleasure talking to you today. I found today's conversation to be very enlightening. Before we depart, please let my listeners know where they can follow your content. The only place really to follow me now is at Jim Jatris on Twitter. I have essentially stopped writing uh, for the last couple of years, partly because um, my muse has deserted me and I just don't have the, I guess, the mental focus to sit down and and actually think systematically to write things. Maybe that will change in the future, but somehow I don't think so. And I have to tell you, Jose, I'm a little bit, I don't want to sound too bummed out here or black-pilled, but I sometimes have the feeling that whatever is baked into the cake at this point, both nationally and internationally, is not going to change because of what we say or do. That bad times, they is a coming. And people need to prepare for them. They need to prepare for them personally in your family, in your community, and try to make yourself as survivable as possible. You know, I'm not saying you got to have to go full Unabob or Cabin in the Woods or anything, but um, <laughs> think protectively because America and the life that we've known it, you're, I think, considerably younger than I am. So I, I think I knew a different America than, than even you did. That's not going to be the same in the next few years. You've heard about the Strauss-House cycle over the, you know, the fourth turning I think we're in one of those crisis periods that 10 years from now, we will not recognize the country that we live in then compared to what we have now. And uh, I think that's where people really need to put their focus, that there's a lot that's coming that we cannot avert. All valid points. We're just going to have to see what happens in the global consumer imperium that is contemporary America. And To my audience, as always, thank you for your generous attention. And with that, El Nino has spoken.